0: The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life podcast deals with serious issues such as drug references, sexual references and violence that may be distressing to some listeners. It is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we wrap up the story of Jeff Buckley. As we explore the final year of Jeff's life as he begins the recording and writing process for his second studio album before that tragic and fateful day that Jeff drowned in the Mississippi at the age of just 30. As we learn about the impact this had on his friends and family, and the legacy that he left behind. All that and more coming your way in this episode. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is part three of the story of Jeff Buckley. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Prince has died at the age of 57. Yes, it this is it. Sorry, Gary, but I was always the talented member of the band. Keep going, little girl. I will hit a man with glasses. I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Former Beatle John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. as beans shouldn't present fucking awards to gonna be. Jeff Buckley would continue his Grace album tour in Australia from September 1995 before the band took a much needed break from one another after a couple of riffs had started forming amongst its members as they then returned home to the US where Jeff decided to continue playing solo gigs at Sine and on New Year's Eve at the Mercury Lounge in New York City. After their brief break, due to his popularity in Australia, Jeff with his band would travel back for more gigs in their capital cities and more rural areas such as Newcastle, New South Wales during February 1996, selling out six club shows in the space of just 15 minutes and even performing a one-off show in Auckland, New Zealand, calling it the Hard Luck Tour. But during a gig at the Coogee Bay Hotel in Sydney, New South Wales, on March 1st, 1996, drummer Matt Johnson and the band had reached their limit with him and had enough. This would sadly prove to be Matt Johnson's final gig with the band as they once again headed back home to the US in March. When they returned to the US, Jeff continued to play solo gigs for a few months with the band being put on hold again until Jeff and the band could find a new drummer. Jeff would play as a solo artist in clubs, cafes and bars like the good old days on what he called the Solo Phantom Tour and was believed to have missed the old days of when nobody noticed him as his gigs were now overcrowded at these smaller venues. And it took away the intimacy of the smaller gigs that he fell in love with in the first place. Most of all, Jeff loved playing in clubs to around 200 to 700 people and no more. Therefore, to limit the amount of people that would be showing up to his gigs, he would go by a range of hilarious sounding aliases to trick his audiences and would continually have to change them. These aliases included the Crackrobats, Father Demo, Smackrobiotic, The Half Speeds, Crit Club, Topless America, Marfa and the Nicotines, a puppet show named Julio, and my personal favourite, called Possessed by Elves. This tactic, however, eventually wore off and people started to catch on to him. When speaking about these times... Jeff was quoted as saying there was a time in my life not too long ago when I could show up in a cafe and simply do what I do make music learn from performing my music explore what it means to me have fun while I irritate and or entertain an audience who don't know me or what I am about in this situation I have that precious and irreplaceable luxury of failure of risk, of surrender. I worked very hard to get this kind of thing together, this work forum. I loved it, and then I missed it when it disappeared. All I am doing is reclaiming it. It's crazy to think that a musician who had dreamed of becoming popular would turn fans away on purpose. But Jeff realised, now that it was actually happening, that he didn't really want to be as big as he originally thought as Jeff ultimately would push fame and fortune away for his own happiness and sanity guitarist Michael Ty also observed Jeff's rejection of fame and said that Jeff was very conflicted about fame and that while in some aspects he wanted it in others he despised it seasoned musicians even started attending Jeff's gigs regularly but so would fans of Tim Buckley, Jeff's father. It's said that Tim Buckley fans would show up to Jeff's gigs and yell out, ''Yeah, Tim, or you're just like your father.'' However, this would frustrate Jeff and really pissed him off to the point that he would occasionally yell back at the fans and say, ''Fuck off, just fuck off.'' As Jeff hated the thought of living in his father's shadow, Or that he couldn't escape his father's influence. One fan recalled saying to Jeff. I used to know your dad. Which Jeff replied. Well I didn't. The issue of Jeff's abandonment by his father. As a youngster. Would constantly come back to weigh him down. When Jeff found fame. He began to see articles written about him. That read. Like father like son. Comparing him to his dad. And he absolutely hated it. While live on radio, Jeff even admitted that his father abandoned him. When speaking about his father, Jeff was quoted as saying, Can I just say something? I don't hate my father, and I don't resent him existing. It's just something I've grown up with all my life. Not being a part of the life that has so much energy over here, and having my own... And then when you're a kid, people assume that you have no mind to be around. Which at a very early age, I did. It's my way of resisting people's trivialisation of my music. If it should be known, and it should, I have a great, great admiration for Tim and what he did. And some things he did completely embarrassed me to hell. But the things that were great, I'll hold up against anything. But that's a respect as a fellow artist, because he really wasn't my father. My father was Ron Moorhead, which of course was Jeff's stepfather. As Jeff continues, But because I've done so many interviews, and I look at the page, I think that the feeling that comes across, it's not accurate. It shouldn't be remembered as that, because it looks very bitter. Jeff would also say in another interview about his father, Tim, that he spent many years wondering why he actually left. But as he got older and became a musician himself, he understood to a certain extent why he did. As Jeff was quoted as saying, I never got to fall in love with him, so it wouldn't mean the same to me. Compassion for him and really pointed years of work and trying to find out what the fuck happened And now I understand, I've got a really clear picture, because I've had to smell it up close myself. During June 1996, Patti Smith would release her album Gone Again, which featured a collaboration with Jeff Buckley called Beneath the Southern Cross, as Jeff provided his soothing backing vocals for the song, with Patti thinking a lot of Jeff as a person and as a musician. During this time, Jeff also started writing songs for a potential second studio album that he was going to call, My Sweetheart, The Drunk. While Jeff of course enjoyed writing songs in his own time, at his own pace, he hated the pressure that his labels, Sony and Columbia Records would place him under saying to him that they needed a follow-up album to Grace and that it needs to be even better and bigger, with bigger hits aimed more towards the American market. Jeff felt this overwhelming pressure and it significantly weighed him down for months to come. The label wanted Jeff to be the next biggest thing, but Jeff, to be honest, couldn't care less. He just wanted to do things his way and play to small crowds, not stadiums and arenas. He was exhausted after a two year long debut tour and was feeling burnt out as he began to struggle to write quality songs. As Jeff's ex, Liz Fraser, was quoted as saying, I mean could you imagine what it would have been like for Jeffrey? Everybody wanted something from him, he couldn't help it. He just had something that you wanted, it didn't matter who you were. While working on the track, Beneath the Southern Cross with Paddy Smith, Jeff also met musician Tom Verlaine of the New York rock band Television, with Verlaine also playing guitar on the album for a track called Fireflies. After befriending Verlaine and learning of his ability as a producer, Jeff requested if he would like to be the producer for My Sweetheart the Drunk and Valane agreed this was despite the label wanting to assign their own producer and Jeff going against their wishes recording sessions with Jeff his band and Velaine began in Manhattan during mid 1996 with an American drummer named Eric Idle filling in on drums during the session work As Jeff worked on his own album, he also started collaborating more with others after he met the female lead singer of The Nymphs, Inga Law, while out at a bar, and the two quickly hit it off. Not too long after forming their friendship, Inga and Jeff both were included on a spoken word track called Angel Mine for a tribute album for writer Jack Kerouac. The album was titled Kerouac, Kicks Joy Darkness, and featured a range of big names such as Michael Stipe, Patti Smith, Steven Tyler, Johnny Depp, and many more. Inga Law would then leave the Nymphs to pursue a solo career, and due to her guitarist pulling out of her band's upcoming album, titled Transcendental Medication, Jeff would offer to fill in on guitar Teaming with Inga and also displaying his vocals during the album. One song in particular, titled Yard of Blonde Girls, was originally written by Audrey Clark and Laurie Kramer. During a project together called Pendulum Floors, about Kramer's childhood friend who took their own life. But Inga Law decided to add a new verse to the track and placed it on her album, with the new verse said to have been written about Jeff Buckley. Jeff loved the song so much that he even recorded a cover version with his own band during the recording sessions for My Sweetheart the Drunk. These recording sessions in Manhattan with Tom Verlaine lasted until early 1997, but Jeff was quite unsatisfied and frustrated with the quality of the tracks and wanted a more experimental and fresh approach for his new album. So he shelved the recording for now, and instead tested the waters by playing some of these songs at a gig at the knitting factory on the 4th of February, 1997. As Jeff would play the songs Jewel Box, Morning Theft, Everybody Here Wants You, The Sky Is A Landfill, and Yard Of Blonde Girls... All being played live for an audience for the very first time Musician Lou Reed was actually in attendance one night And was impressed with Jeff Expressing to him that he would love to collaborate at some point down the track When it came to reforming Jeff's band He found the experience quite stressful and overwhelming As his label Columbia Records were once again in his ear ...about making the best possible record. Eventually, fill-in drummer Eric Idle was let go of... ...and a new permanent drummer was appointed... ...named Parker Kindred. Parker Kindred had found out about the role... ...through his mutual friend Mick Rondahl... ...and would make his debut for Jeff's band... ...on the 9th of February 1997... At a bar called Arlene's Grocery on the Lower East Side of Manhattan Jeff then featured on a spoken word album called Closed on Account of Rabies As a tribute to writer and poet Edgar Allan Poe For the poem titled Yulaloom With other poems being read on the album by Iggy Pop, Deborah Harry and Christopher Walken This would actually prove to be Jeff's final recording while in New York City. After just one more live show in New York, Jeff decided that he would be moving permanently to Memphis, with the band flying over to join him for a gig on the 12th of February, 1997, after securing a residency at a small club called Barrister's Bar, playing there regularly on Monday nights. For so long, New York had felt like Jeff's creative paradise and his home, but it was simply becoming too fast-paced and heavy. He had to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city life and recharge if he was ever to produce a quality album. As Parker Kindred spoke about New York and Jeff's relationship and was quoted as saying, I know that he needed to get out of there, he was going insane. On a good day, the city's the place to be, but on a bad day, it can eat your soul. The biggest reason for him leaving was that he needed to write some music, and he couldn't do it here, and there's just a lot of temptation, I think. He was just trying to isolate himself. Jeff had made the move to Memphis after his close friend, David Shouse, of the band The Grifters, suggested he do so. And inspired him to seek a sound similar to his band The Grifters for his next album. As The Grifters, who often performed as a support act for Jeff Buckley at his gigs, played a mix of melody and harsh rock and roll rhythm sections, which really appealed to Jeff at the time. Jeff didn't want to make a cut copy replica of Grace like his label wanted him to, He instead wanted to shock his fans with his next release and was up for the challenge of trying something new and exciting like playing rock or edgier music instead of pop ballads no matter what pressure was thrown at him from his label. Memphis would open Jeff up to new ideas for his songs and despite writing loads of tracks he said he experienced severe writer's block with the quality of his lyrics still not feeling enough for him. Jeff's girlfriend Joanne Wasser would remain in New York, allowing Jeff to focus on his music at the time, as they shared a long distance relationship. Despite struggling with writer's block and being on his own, Jeff told his bandmates, who were back in LA and New York, that he was doing great. It was clear to see at this point, that Jeff was potentially looking for a way out of his record deal with Columbia, and that he perhaps was looking to go down an independent route if they were to keep pushing him. As Jeff once said about the music industry and labels, that the music industry, quote, loves to kill artists who don't subscribe to their ways and express their own values or talk poetically. We are totally devalued. This was often thought to be the reason why Jeff never made it as a household name in his home country of the USA when he was alive, being far too outspoken and free thinking, as he wouldn't take orders from Columbia Records and go against his morals and values in exchange for success or becoming a famed artist who he simply isn't. In the early days when he moved to Memphis, At first Jeff was enjoying performing solo or with his band on Monday nights at Barristers Bar as it was a fresh audience that didn't necessarily know of his music or who he actually was. But after a number of gigs there, word started to get out and a number of his diehard fans from LA and New York began to travel up to see him perform in Memphis all the time. While he appreciated the support of his fans for making the effort to travel out, it took away that fresh and exciting feeling of appealing to a new fan base and the whole purpose of the escape to Memphis. With Jeff recording My Sweetheart the Drunk at Easley McCain Recording Studio during February 1997 in Memphis, Jeff would grow tired of the process and the pressure by Columbia and Sony Records and was very unhappy with what they had produced as a band so far once again. With drummer Parker Kindred quoted as saying, I think there was just a lot of chaos going on in his life when we tried to record this record and the recordings weren't sounding too great. The labels had been so pushy and relentless that Jeff was believed to have entered a bad bout of depression at this time. While Jeff started clashing with his bandmates once again, in intense and fiery exchanges during their recording sessions, causing rifts in the band, which actually led Michael Tyre, Mick Grondale, and Parker Kindred to jump on a plane back to New York to leave Jeff to be on his own, so he could calm down. Jeff also decided to sack Tom Verlaine as producer, and recalled Andy Wallace back into the fold as his replacement, who of course was the producer for Grace, which no doubt would have made the label happy. But this also would have been frustrating for Jeff, as he was looking to produce a different sounding album, with all due respect to the work of Wallace in the past. As it appeared that Jeff had become worn out by the process and decided to give in and relieve some of his own stress by pleasing his label's requests. While living in Memphis, Jeff would settle in and move into a suburban neighbourhood. He would rent himself an old white shotgun shack or shotgun house known for being a small and narrow rectangular shaped house which were very popular at the end of the American Civil War in 1865 to the 1920s in the southern parts of the United States. Despite the house being quite basic and run down, requiring a lot of TLC, Jeff actually loved it that much that he even phoned up the owner and inquired about buying it, as he enjoyed the quieter life. While living here on his own, away from his bandmates, girlfriend and friends, he continued playing at dive bars in downtown Memphis as a solo performer, attempting to bring back his spark by testing the waters with his latest songs, but was struggling to recapture that feeling of excitement. Jeff sporadically kept in touch with his bandmates, But at this stage, the album was not looking like it would go ahead and he wasn't really in the mood for socialising as his landlord said that Jeff just wanted to be left alone. While one of Jeff's friends claimed that Jeff would disappear for days on end with no trace of him and then randomly he would just show up again. All Jeff had with him when he moved into the house was his instruments and guitars four-track recorder, a lonely singular chair, a home phone and a phone book, with the house being quite bare, with no furniture and not even a bed. During his time at this house, Jeff was well known to his neighbours for purposely letting his grass and weeds on his lawn grow extremely long and bushy up to knee height. So that he could go out the front yard and lay in the tall grass, staring up at the sky. For Jeff, this would have been a freeing experience where he felt at peace with nature. He wasn't Jeff Buckley the superstar musician anymore. He was just himself, that normal person that he had always been. And it was a perfect distraction from all the depressing and stressful events happening in his life at the present time but when Jeff wasn't escaping into nature he was stressed out over his obligations to his record label for his second studio album which by this point had turned into a nightmare it was all becoming too much thanks to the labels demands and Jeff knew if he didn't stand up for himself that it wasn't going to get any better so Against Sony and Columbia's wishes, Jeff stood up to the label and scrapped the previous album recording sessions and told them they need to record it all again. No exceptions. As Jeff wrote in his personal journal, quote, I don't write my music for Sony, I write it for the people who are screaming down the road crying to a full blast stereo. With Jeff doubting his own talent and latest recordings, he managed to get his wish to re-record the whole album all again, and he was allocated more time to have it complete as things finally looked on the up as Jeff stood his ground and got the breathing space he so desperately needed. With the pressure easing somewhat and Jeff feeling like he had just won a battle with his label, Jeff's writing block had seemingly and miraculously lifted as he started to write more quality tracks. Jeff's friends even noticed that he all of a sudden had a spring in his step again and was happy and excited for his future. In preparation for a fourth studio session with Andy Wallace, while in his living room, Jeff decided to start recording demo tracks on a basic four-track recorder, sat on top of an upturned milk crate, as he turned his living room into his own personal studio. During these living room sessions, he was able to come up with the framework for the songs that would feature on My Sweetheart the Drunk, using unique techniques such as running up and down the stairs and tapping on them to create a unique instrument as he started to get experimental with whatever he had around him. Despite Jeff still having some doubts over these new tracks, Jeff sent copies to Steve Berkowitz and his bandmates, and they were blown away with what he had come up with, and they believed that some of the songs would be hits for sure. But on the 29th of May, 1997, just when Jeff and his band were set to rehearse and record the new tracks together for the new album... With Jeff's life seemingly back on track, Jeff Buckley would sadly pass away at just the age of 30 in a horrifying, mysterious, and tragic death. Sadly, Jeff was so thrilled about life again with his friend Keith Fody, claiming that Jeff was just about to open up a bank account, buy a car, and put a deposit down on the rental house in Memphis that he had been living in after Jeff had been talking his friend Keith's ear off about the potential for his house. Jeff had also arranged for Mick Grondahl, Parker Kindred and Michael Tyre to come down to Memphis to rehearse and record the album and they would fly down the very same day that Jeff had died. On the day of Jeff Buckley's death, the 29th of May 1997, Jeff had been hanging out with his close friend, Keith Fody, who Jeff had recently hired as his roadie. Jeff and his band were booked in to rehearse and record their new album, and Fody and Jeff decided to arrive early so they could jam together on drums and guitar before the others arrive. The only problem was... The rehearsal space was located at a different studio than Easley McCain recording which made it difficult for Fody and Jeff to locate as they drove around looking for it having not been there before. As they couldn't find the studio Fody and Jeff decided to kill some time and do something a little different choosing to head down to Wolf River Harbor a slack water channel off the Mississippi River and they spent a few hours here as it started to get dark. The shoreline was covered in rocks with boats at one side of the harbour. Parker Kindred, Michael Tyre and Mick Grondahl were all said to have been on their way and were flying in on separate planes. Parker Kindred would be the first to arrive in Memphis, and when he arrived at the studio, he couldn't locate Jeff. He questioned someone if they knew where he was and Parker was told that he's with Keith Fody. Parker assumed that they might be at Jeff's house and arrived to find that no one was there again and couldn't locate him anywhere so he decided to wait at Jeff's house. Ten minutes later, Parker received a phone call from Keith Fody saying that, quote, Jeff's gone under in the river, come down right away. According to Keith Fody, he and Jeff had taken a boombox or portable stereo and a guitar down to the river's edge with them and chucked on some Led Zeppelin as they sat there talking and strumming away on the guitar located underneath the overpass bridge. When the song Whole Lotta Love came on by Led Zeppelin, Jeff got up and decided to walk towards the river's edge at the boat marina or ramp and contemplated going for a swim by dipping his foot in to test the temperature. It was a warm night that evening and the water was perfect, being calm and peaceful. So as the chorus to Whole Lot of Love rolled around, Jeff entered the water fully clothed and wearing his heavy boots. Jeff floated on his back, swimming around, doing backstroke, while singing the song's chorus to Whole Lot of Love, and talking to Fodi close to the shoreline. Due to a tugboat passing by, it caused a few waves to start flowing to shore, so Fodi decided to get up and move the stereo and guitar to higher ground by placing the stereo on top of a flat rock so they didn't get wet or ruined. When Foti looked back to talk to Jeff, he noticed Jeff had completely disappeared from sight and making it even more impossible to see was the fact that there was little lighting and it was a very dark night. Fody then notified emergency services immediately with U-boats, scuba teams, police and a helicopter arriving at the scene to look for Jeff within 5 minutes as a scene of chaos and horror transpired. When Parker Kindred arrived to help look for Jeff, he was quoted as saying, The river does not look that far across. When we saw Fody for the first time, we were just like, Wait, who's this guy? And where's our friend? It was really strange. Parker seemed suspicious of Fody at first, as Jeff had only just assigned Fody as his roadie, and he was yet to meet the band. Michael Ty arrived slightly late to Memphis, and said that it was always a spin-out to think that while he was touching down in Memphis on the plane, that Jeff was drowning in the river, which would always stick with him and devastate him. Michael recalls himself and the band being so excited to see him and jam with him as it had been weeks since they last caught up and that he was shocked and upset not to see Jeff greeting him at the airport as Jeff had said he'd be there but Jeff must have forgotten these plans as Michael had a strange feeling that something was up. Jeff's mother, Mary Goubert, was also notified by the Memphis Police Department that Jeff was missing, receiving the dreaded call that no mother should ever have to experience. Mary was of course shocked and said to the police that she was sure they just weren't looking in the right place. Mary decided after hearing of the news to hop on the first flight she could to come and help in the search for Jeff with label executive Steve Berkowitz also joining her. As his mother Mary arrived at the Memphis airport, she remembers the sky being black with heavy rain and lightning and an ominous feeling in the air. While Steve Berkowitz recalls heading straight down to the river's edge, saying that there was a thunderstorm and lightning and that the police boats were dredging the river, and that it was a surreal and horrible experience. Mick Grondahl also arrived to help, but after days of everyone close to Jeff helping in the search efforts, they decided to head back home to New York and allow the authorities to do their job, as concern for Jeff grew. As the news hit about Jeff's disappearance on the mainstream media, radio, MTV, and newspapers... Horrible stories started to circulate claiming that Jeff had been drunk or on drugs or that it was a suicide attempt. But these were all just claims with no evidence to back them up as Jeff's body hadn't even been found yet. While one particular newspaper headline read Musician missing after wading into harbour. When details emerged, people were stunned that Jeff would go into the water fully clothed. Former drummer for Jeff, Matt Johnson, claimed that it was actually typical for Jeff to go in for a swim with clothes and shoes on. With Jeff still missing, devastated fans would hold candlelight vigils outside Shanae, with friends and family also attending. Rock star Sebastian Buck of the band Skid Row was also devastated by the news being a fan and a friend of Jeff's and dedicated a concert at the Whiskey A Go Go to Jeff himself as he said to the crowd, I hoped that he would somehow still show up as Sebastian that night played the song Eternal Life in Jeff's honour. The search for Jeff Buckley went on for around six days as the police and scuba crews scoured the murky waters of the Mississippi. Then on June 4th 1997, a passenger on board one of the largest steamboats on the Mississippi known as the American Queen noticed a body entangled in debris and branches located near the shoreline of Mud Island in Harbortown. When authorities went to investigate the sighting, they recovered the body and later confirmed that it was in fact the body of Jeff Buckley and that his body had travelled a few hundred yards downstream from where he first stepped into the river at the marina ramp nearby Beale Street at Wolf River Harbour. The investigation into Jeff's death concluded that the tugboat that passed by Jeff caused him to be pulled underwater and resulted in him drowning... as he struggled to rise to the surface... with experts assuming that Jeff became entangled on some branches underneath the water... which later would have become loose and allowed his body to drift a couple hundred yards down the river... from where he first stepped into the water at Wolf River Harbour... ending up at the marina ramp near Mud Island and being discovered at around 4.30pm on a Wednesday afternoon. An autopsy or coroner's report found that no drugs or alcohol were in his system at the time, and it was concluded as a death by accidental drowning, with the murky water being deemed more dangerous than first thought due to the debris that lay under the water. Due to the nature of Jeff's death and how sudden and unexpected it was, it raised many questions and still remains one of the most unusual and mysterious deaths in music history. Few claim that foul play may have been the cause, but these claims were quickly dismissed, while Jeff's friends, family, bandmates and experts all ruled out the possibility of suicide Despite some raising this question due to Jeff once teasing or joking about the topic during an interview and also being quite depressed due to his newfound fame and pressure from his label. Jeff's family and friends held a memorial service for him at 7pm on a Friday at St. Anne and the Holy Trinity Church in Brooklyn Heights, New York where Jeff first started taking off playing at his father's tribute concert. The service was open to all of his fans, and was attended by his mother Mary, Steve Berkowitz, and band members, friends, and family, as they paid tribute to Jeff's wonderful but short career, and the amazing life that he led. After Jeff's death was announced, a distraught mother Mary was quoted as saying, I'm probably one of the only mums in rock history, one of a few anyway, that has a coroner's report that says there were no drugs or no alcohol. As Jeff had passed away, before being able to fill out an official will, his estate transferred over to his mother Mary, giving her control over what could be released of Jeff's, including his music. Mary quickly discovered that Sony were planning on releasing the recordings from the Tom Verlaine sessions and were planning on renaming the second studio album, Sketches For My Sweetheart The Drunk after they had been adjusting the mixes of the tracks and mastering them Mary and Jeff's bandmates were furious at Sony for this as Jeff didn't want these tracks to be heard as he wasn't satisfied with them before his passing, which prompted Mary to seek legal action to stop Sony releasing the album. But after much discussion, Mary would allow Sony to go through with the release, as they hadn't yet received their return on their investment on Jeff Buckley's contract, but on one condition, that as long as they only release the tracks that were quality, mostly finished, and as they were on the original demo recordings, without being polished up, as Mary was quoted as saying, If this was his body here, and we were preparing it for his funeral, we would not put him in a suit. We would put him in a flower shirt, and some black jeans, and his Doc Martens, and leave his hair all mussed up. Meaning, of course, that they shouldn't alter the way the recording sounded. Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk would be officially released on the 26th of May 1998 as a posthumous compilation album which included a double-sided 20-track album with Jeff's former bandmates Mother Mary, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and friend Michael J. Klaus all overseeing the album's production and release to ensure it would best represent Jeff's legacy. In Australia, where he had been the most popular, the album charted at number 1 and went double platinum there, while it also reached number 6 in France, who were also huge Jeff Buckley fans, followed by New Zealand and the UK at both number 7. Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk displayed Jeff's incredible relaxing vocals and the different directions he possibly could have went down if he had have lived on with michael tye telling mojo magazine quote he definitely wanted to make a much grittier album than grace he often would say that he wanted to make music that would scare people and he was into the idea of dividing his audience he knew that a lot of his audience wouldn't like this album and he was energized and excited by that. Standout tracks from sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk included the beautiful laid back soul type track titled Everybody Here Wants You, which was written for Jeff's girlfriend at the time, Joanne Wasser, while other standouts from the album included The Sky Is a Landfill, You and I, New Year's Prayer, Opened Once, and a cover of Yard of Blonde Girls. Some of the tracks on the album significantly highlight the influences Jeff was drawing from at the time, with the song Nightmares by the Sea having an almost Nirvana or Kurt Cobain type feel to it, similar to Come As You Are, as Jeff sings about how young love can be naive, mistaking sex and physical attraction for love with the female character in the song falling for a male character but the woman in question not necessarily knowing what she is getting into as the male doesn't feel the same for her. While the track "Witches Rave appears to draw from one of Jeff's personal favourite bands being the Smiths, while the other track I Know We Could Be So Happy Baby sounds very similar to the style of Led Zeppelin, another of Jeff's favourites. The track, Morning Theft, is said to be about Jeff's relationship with Liz Fraser, with this almost being confirmed in the line, Your precious daughter in the other room, asleep. Which of course is a reference to Liz having a daughter, to her ex-partner and Cocteau twins bandmate, Robin Goofrey. The track, You and I, is a beautiful but eerie track, that sees Jeff show off his incredible haunting vocals, with little to no music to accompany him, other than a slight eerie tone, ringing throughout the track, in the background, and is well worth a listen. The song New Year's Prayer, was cited for its potential influence, by Led Zeppelin musically, and was actually based off of a poem, that Jeff wrote, titled, My New Year's Eve Prayer which he read live at the New Year's Day Poetry Marathon at St. Mark's Church in New York City on January 1st, 1995. With Jeff, with his mastermind, managing to turn this poem into a brilliant, enchanting and mesmerising type of track that actually delves into New Year's resolutions that usually stress people out into changing for the better, at such a hectic and stressful time of the year, with Jeff telling the listener that they don't have to change and to just be yourself. As Jeff sings the lines, You, my love, are allowed to forget about the Christmas you just spent stressed out in your parents' house. You, my love, are allowed to be soaked like a lover's blanket in the New York summertime with the wonder of your own special gift. Feel no shame for what you are. Stand absolved behind your electric chair, dancing. The song Sky is a Landfill was actually adapted from journalist and Jeff Buckley's friend, Al Giordano's essay titled, The Medium is the Middleman. With Al Giordano quoted as saying, He applied my critique of the media industry to the music industry and we had the exact same conclusions. The concept of the song was that the media turned the airwaves into a garbage dump. The track Everybody Here Wants You would go down as the most memorable from the album, and even received a nomination for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance at the 1999 Grammy Awards. After Jeff Buckley's death, Tributes also rang out from musicians and celebrities around the world who wondered what Jeff would have done if he had of lived on, including Jimmy Page, Brad Pitt, and Robert Plant. While Bono of U2 said, Jeff Buckley was a pure drop in an ocean of noise. While Chris Cornell of Soundgarden was quoted as saying, he could have literally been doing anything musically that he wanted to do. And I would think of it like I would think of Jimi Hendrix. Where there's no real way to predict it. Because he could have done anything. Chris Cornell would actually write a tribute song called Wave Goodbye. About Jeff on his 1999 solo album Euphoria Morning. Which of course, Wave Goodbye ...was a reference to Jeff's song, Last Goodbye. Many songs over the years would be written in Jeff's honour... ...including Rufus Wainwright's song, With Memphis Skyline... ...Steve Aday, With Mississippi... ...Duncan Sheik With A Body Goes Down... ...With Matt Johnson on drums, as well as many more. While many would also remark at Jeff's incredible vocal range... Being classified as a tenor that spanned around four octaves and the way that he would go from softer sounding vocals to loud intense howls and screams to even high falsetto was simply amazing. Jeff was such a talented singer that many forgot just how talented he was as a guitarist and that he was actually a multi-instrumentalist. Over his career, he used a range of guitars, but most commonly played the 1983 Fender Telecaster and the Rickenbacker 36012, accompanied by Fender amps for his clean, crisp sound and Mesa Boogie amps for more reverb. In regards to other instruments that Jeff could play, he even played the Dobro resonator guitar, bass, organ, the dulcimer fretted string instrument, Indian tabla drums... The Indian esraj string instrument, mandolin, harmonica, and the pump organ harmonium, which he all used throughout his career. Jeff's death would also hit his former bandmates hard, as former drummer of Jeff's, Matt Johnson, said some beautiful things about Jeff, claiming that his music is like an awakening, and that the album Grace was amazing, as he was quoted as saying... He could awaken people's sense of who they were and their own passions. It's even hard to listen to that record. There's so much longing in it. There's a deep yearning for a connection to the source that's there. And you feel like doing something that you never do when you listen to music like that. It's like, why do I live in this track? Why do I wake up at the same time every morning? Why am I a creature of habit? Jeff's manager... Dave Laurie was shocked by the news of Jeff's death and told Mojo magazine, quote, Putting the phone down, I felt like I'd let go of a life belt at sea, a slow motion pulse of panic and confusion. Dave then went on to say how he comforted some employees of his that were connected to Jeff at Sony but that some Sony executives crossed the line with how unfazed they seemed about his death as they were more keen to push the new album for Sony's financial gain. While Jeff's friend, Tammy Shouse, told Mojo Magazine that Jeff had told her that he thought his time was coming to an end here on Earth, as she said, quote, I feel like Memphis walked him down the aisle because he was dreaming about his death, and he knew that something was up, and he felt it. With Jeff's death due to drowning, coming under the spotlight, many began to look into Jeff's lyrics, finding some eerie and strange similarities, in multiple songs of his, that concerned some of his listeners. As Jeff often wrote songs, based off of his dreams, potentially meaning, that Jeff perhaps dreamt of his death, Before it had even occurred, with the lines in the song So Real, reading And I couldn't awake from the nightmare that sucked me in and pulled me under. Which of course, is eerily similar to the tugboat dragging him under the water and his struggle to resurface. The track Dream Brother also has a line that reads Asleep in the sand with the ocean washing over me. With Jeff, of course, being found on the shoreline. In the song Grace, Jeff also sang the lines, It's my time coming, I'm not afraid to die. I feel them drown my name, so easy to know, and forget with this kiss. I'm not afraid to go, but it goes so slow. While, of course, Jeff was also referring to relationships in these songs, And using drowning type metaphors. To explain the way he was feeling. It's quite interesting that Jeff chose these words. And on multiple occasions. Whether it's anything to be taken seriously or not. Or just a coincidence. It's quite interesting nonetheless. With Mark Foster. Of the band Foster the People. Was interviewed by NME in 2012. And was quoted as saying. He drowned. And in this song, it seems like he's talking about drowning, which used to make me cry, because I couldn't believe he was dead, and that he was talking about it in the song, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Jeff's girlfriend, and rumoured to be even fiancé at the time, Joanne Wasser, said about Jeff, quote, It was such a traumatic experience of loss, I needed to grieve, but I didn't know how. With Joanne stating in another interview that Jeff hinted that he wouldn't grow old like he knew his time was coming. As she was quoted as saying, Not too long after we met, he said, You know, I'm going to die young. With her own band, Those Bastard Souls and David Grouse of the Grifters, they put together an album titled Dead and Departure in honour of Jeff before Joanne attempted to form a band with the remaining members of Jeff's band calling themselves Black Beetle, as Joanne would become the lead singer and write their songs, and even recording an album together that would actually never be released. Joanne had been frightened to sing at first, but picked it up quickly as she was quoted as saying, I found singing terrifying at first, I didn't know about the boundaries of my voice, and I had no idea what words I wanted to say. The violin had been my voice for so long. However, this project of Joanne's and Jeff's former bandmates wouldn't last. Joanne Wasser would go on to have a solid career as a musician under the stage name as Joanne as Policewoman but it would be a tough one in regards to her own personal life. After losing Jeff in 1997, Joanne continued with Black Beetle and Those Bastard Souls, and joined a band in 1999 called Anthony and the Johnsons, where she mainly played violin for their Mercury Prize winning album, I Am A Bird Now. In 2001, Those Bastard Souls split up, followed by Black Beetle in 2002, leaving Joanne to go solo, playing guitar and singing her own songs, before performing under the name Joanne as Policewoman, which of course, was backed by her own personal band. Together as Joanne as Policewoman, they released an EP, before Joanne toured with Rufus Wainwright, and Joseph Arthur. In 2003, she suffered another loss close to her with American musician Elliot Smith taking his own life, and she would suffer many more losses over the years, including her adoptive and birth father, her mother to cancer, and her close friend, musician Lou Reed. Joanne would go solo once more, releasing nine studio albums all the way from 2006 to 2021 and is still performing to this very day at the age of 53. Ex-girlfriend of Jeff's, Elizabeth or Liz Fraser, was recording the vocals for the song Teardrop with Massive Attack the day that Jeff was declared missing. While Liz Fraser actually based her lyrics on the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard and his work, some of the lyrics in the song represent her love for Jeff as she appeared to have some regrets over the way things had ended between them as she was quoted as saying after Jeff's death, I wish I had been more understanding, happy with a different kind of relationship. I missed out on something there and it was my fault. Liz elaborated in another interview about the recording of the song Teardrop and the coincidence that she had been thinking about him a lot around the time of his death by saying That was so weird, I'd got letters out and I was thinking about him That song's kind of about him, that's how it feels to me anyway With Liz holding on to some guilt over what had happened between them and that she didn't continue their relationship, at least as close friends, Liz was quoted as saying, I need to forgive myself. Teardrop would be released officially during 1998, featuring Liz Fraser's stunning calming vocals, accompanied by massive attacks relaxing and emotive beat and an incredible music video showing a developing fetus in the womb, singing the song, which was actually made from latex. The music video won an award at the MTV Europe Awards for best video, and saw the track rise to number 1 in Iceland, 10 in the UK, and 16 in Australia where it also charted at number 22 on the Australian Triple J Radio Hottest 100 of all time list. Believe it or not, Liz Fraser was actually chosen in a 2-1 vote by the Massive Attack members to feature as the vocalist on the track Teardrop, beating pop star Madonna for the gig. Liz Fraser would go on to collaborate with a number of musicians, including Peter Gabriel. She toured with Massive Attack in 2006 and contributed her vocals to a number of film soundtracks over the years, including for two Lord of the Rings films. Now aged almost 60, Liz continues to collaborate with folk artists and has recently released her very own EP in 2022, Titled Son's Signature, and is still today with her partner Damon Reese, who she shares two daughters with. Over the years, a total of nineteen compilation albums and live albums have been put out, with Mystery White Boy in 2000, Live at Olympia in 2001, So Real Songs from Jeff Buckley in 2007 and You and I in 2006 being some of the better albums of the bunch that managed to chart well around the world especially in Australia, Ireland, France, the UK and New Zealand While in 2002 Gary Lucas released an album called Songs to No One from 1991 to 1992 featuring 11 tracks from Jeff and Gary's live gigs ...studio sessions and home tapes. On top of that, a number of great documentaries have circulated over the years... ...and are well worth a watch, including Everybody Here Wants You... ...by the BBC in 2002 and Amazing Grace Jeff Buckley, released in 2004. In May through to June 2007, tribute concerts were held in Jeff's honour all around the world... With Jeff's family and friends in attendance, and helping to organise these gigs taking place in countries like Australia and Ireland, among others. While Jeff wasn't as big in the US when he was alive as opposed to now, and was occasionally attacked by critics after his death, saying that he wouldn't have been as big without his legendary rock star death, His legacy is maintained through tribute events and festivals in Chicago called Uncommon Ground, in New York called An Evening with Jeff Buckley, and Fall in Light in Australia based off of the lyrics in the song A New Year's Prayer. In 2008, American Idol contestant Jason Castro performed Jeff's version of Hallelujah, Sending viewers to go download the song off of iTunes and sending Jeff to number one for the very first time in the US on their mainstream Hot 100. Selling close to 180,000 copies of Jeff's version of the track in just one week. In 2012, a film that features parts of Jeff's life mixed in with his estranged father Tim... Titled Greetings from Tim Buckley was premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival but was criticised by Jeff Buckley fans for not painting his story or him personally in a great light compared to Tim. Fans might not have to wait too long however as a biopic focused on Jeff's life in particular is set to be in the works with Jeff's mother Mary involved in the film's production. On the 2nd of April, 2014, the Congress National Recording Registry would announce that Jeff's version of Hallelujah would be inducted into their library, highlighting just how incredible this version of the song was. While during 2015, tapes from a 1993 Columbia Records recording session were uncovered, after Sony executives were researching and looking into the archives for content for the 20th anniversary of the Grace album. These 1993 recordings would be released on the album You and I during March 2016, and would include a range of covers performed by Jeff, some of which included Just Like a Woman by Bob Dylan, Everyday People by Sly Stone, ...and covers of The Smiths. While the first ever recorded version of the song Grace... ...was also included on the album... ...as well as an original of Jeff's... ...called Dream of You and I... ...that was previously unreleased. The album You and I would be a huge hit in Australia... ...reaching number two... ...and would peak at number one on the US Folk Albums chart... ...selling over 9,000 copies in just its first week... Following this, in 2019, another compilation album, called In Transition, featuring the single Sky Blue Skin, would be released, but the album failed to chart successfully. Along with this, during 2019, Columbia Records would also release three live albums, titled Live at the Cabaret Metro, Chicago, Live at Wetlands, New York, and live at Columbia Records Radio Hour, New York. The most recent release would be in August 2023, with the Gods and Monsters compilation album, released by Gary Lucas, featuring Jeff Buckley, which features 17 live performances from their one gig as Gods and Monsters in 1992. At the age of 71, Gary Lucas is still performing to this day, while Jeff's bandmates are also now aged in their mid to late 50s and are still performing to this day with different projects and bands. While Jeff's mother, Mary Goubert, is now aged 75 and manages Jeff's estate, okaying any release of music featuring Jeff. While Mary also runs the non-for-profit organisation Road Recovery, designed to help those struggling in the music business with addiction problems, leading to death and educating them on how to avoid these risky behaviours. Today, Jeff Buckley's legacy still burns strong, despite somewhat fading as the years go on. Jeff is still held in high regard in countries like Australia, the UK, Portugal and Ireland while he is actually more famous in the US after his death than before he actually passed away many current musicians cite Jeff as a major influence on their own music including Muse, Foster the People, Adele, Bat for Lashes, Lana Del Rey, Ben Folds 5 Eddie Vedder, and of course, the late Chris Cornell. While Jeff may sadly be gone, we are luckily left with some of his unreleased material, which is set to be released slowly over the coming years by his mother Mary. 26 years on from Jeff's tragic passing, if he had have lived on, he would have been around the age of 56 in November of 2023. Jeff was not only an incredible person, but an incredible musician, as he pushed fame away for his own happiness, playing smaller gigs and performing for the pure joy that it brought him, rather than for the paycheck. Jeff was known as a kind and intelligent man that was simply taken way too soon. He wasn't your typical cookie cutter artist, and he was very unique and determined to do things his way. Having his own strong opinions on matters within society and wasn't able to be misled by what his label wanted him to portray. While Jeff only got to release one album while he was alive, the impact that songs like Eternal Life, Grace, Last Goodbye and his cover of Hallelujah will live on through mediums such as film and TV, and for simply highlighting Jeff's incredibly soothing and haunting vocals, his highly skillful guitar playing, and his exceptional and poetic lyrical ability. To this day, he still has 3.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify, while his album Grace will forever live on as one of the greatest albums of all time. While his life story in itself is one that is incredibly interesting, especially the mystery and poetic way that Jeff passed away, as he of course entered the harbour, listening to his favourite band, Led Zeppelin, which is a story that continues to intrigue and invite new listeners to discover what an incredible catalogue of music that Jeff had. Thank you for tuning in to that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury, to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks, and up-and-comers like Youngblood, Tones and I, and The Kid Leroy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast, or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok and even YouTube and Spotify where you can find a range of playlists featuring the music of every artist covered in the Lyrics of Their Life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a 5 star rating and review on iTunes or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast wherever you listen so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content Ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life.